Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's the 4th of July today, so we're not doing 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to do a 4th of July message. And everybody who's a millennial or in my age group who may be listening to this just had a little panic attack because anything that has to do with the nation, if you're talking about it from the pulpit, it makes people kind of go into convulsions. But let me just let you know, I'm not talking about how great America is this morning. What I'm talking about this morning, since it is the 4th of July, is what is true freedom? What does true freedom look like? Especially in the context of a country that was based on freedom for some and not for others, and then freedom for everyone, but now kind of moving in this weird direction where maybe a lot of us don't know where we stand regarding the Constitution, regarding what freedoms we're allowed to have in the state versus what freedoms we're allowed to have from the federal government versus what freedoms we're allowed to have in local civil city magistrates. Well, what we need to be more concerned with is what does true freedom look like in the kingdom of God? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, if we could turn, I, I have a lot of scripture to go through. I got it on the slides, don't worry, we're going to, I won't leave you hanging there, but um, let's turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 6, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would use me as we go through these scriptures and learn about freedom, Lord, that as our sister Robin said, I, I, I know I can be pretty blunt. Um, and it, this morning will be no different. But I pray, Lord, um, 
for me, a heart of humility, recognizing that in these areas that I'm going to be speaking about this morning, I too fall very frequently. Humility there and also um, a boldness that comes from love, or a love for you most of all, but also a love for uh, my neighbor. And I pray, God, that we would be um, encouraged by the message today to find our ultimate freedom and satisfaction in you alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three types of uh, freedom. F- three types of freedom. There, there's probably, you, you could expand this into a book if you wanted to and go through all the different ways that the scripture talks about freedom and what we're free from. But I'm, I'm kind of summarizing it in three uh, categories for us this morning. Three types of freedom that we need to find, that we need to have. These aren't, these aren't um, optional. And then we'll look at where can we find them. The first one is freedom from slavery. We need to be free from slavery. I started out with Isaiah 61 because what Isaiah 61 points out is that there is an oppression over God's people. Now, in the context here, this is Israel, and they're being encouraged of this coming Messiah that would bring freedom to the captives. The anointed one would bring this good news, this gospel which means good news, to the afflicted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to to prisoners. It's this promise of God of this freedom from oppression. See, one of the things that uh, are so important for us if we're going to understand what freedom looks like is we have to to go back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1.28. I can never get this right. I'm pointing at it, right? Okay, now it's there. All the way back to the beginning of how man was created. Man was not created enslaved to anything. Man was not created oppressed by anything. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Man was created to be a ruler, not a slave. Mankind was given the task of ruling over creation by being ambassadors for God, right? We're, we're reigning over this world that God has prepared for us. And that's why it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, the first Adam, and we'll talk about this more if you decide to come to the Sunday school class today, we look at the role of the first Adam in creation, Adam as in A. A-D-A-M, not Adam as in the particles. Adam, man, right, mankind, was given this responsibility as a priest, king, and prophet to creation. But he failed in these roles. And so now, mankind is enslaved and oppressed. Now, most people understand this to some extent. Even the non-believing world recognizes that things are broken 
right? There are places that certainly have more freedom and less oppression than others, but overall we recognize that there is no genuinely perfect place. There's no genuinely perfect society that any of us can see anyway. And we also recognize that this is because we live in a broken world. People are not perfect. They know that something is wrong with the world, but the problem is that they don't have the right solution. So freedom can take for them many different forms. You know, one of the interesting things about the way that our country is right now and some of the struggles that we're having in our country is it really does open up a lot of opportunities for Christians to go and help people answer some of these questions that they're really struggling with. Why is our society so messed up? What is true justice? What does that look like? What does true freedom look like? And we as Christians have the opportunity to go to them and say, you without the word of God and without the triune God are incapable of answering that question. Because the world cannot, the, the, the world is what is being influenced right now, right? The, the world is subject to the fall of man. So it therefore is broken. It, it cannot answer the longing questions of our heart of what does freedom and justice and all these things, the, these good things that we are called to care for, what do they look like? And the world just cannot answer that. And the reason why is because it can't really discover what the ultimate oppressor is. What are we actually enslaved to? What is actually oppressing us? Is it a dictator? The Bible tells us that we are enslaved to sin. See, after the fall of mankind, sin entered into the world. Man was cursed and expelled from the guarded garden of God in Genesis 3. And he and all his descendants are slaves to sin. Look at what Romans tells us here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what were we before we were free in regards to righteousness. Before we were free, we were slaves to sin. Well, along with that, Jesus answered the people of Israel and says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So a lot of people think they're walking around in freedom right now, but if you sin, what does Jesus say? You're a slave to sin. How many sins do you think you'd have to commit to be a slave to sin? Yeah, it, 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 what Jesus is getting at is, is a, you're, you're in a sinful disposition. Your, your worldview, right? Your, your old nature, apart from Christ, is now subject to sin. It's enslaved to it. You, you can't get out. So most people do think of oppression, even unfortunately in the church when we talk about oppression and slavery, most people think as, as far as they, they think in external terms, right? So like I said, it could be a dictator, uh, it could be some form of racism, it could be some form of sexism, all these issues that plague our society, but the reality is, is these external forms of oppression, they are real, but they're external in the fact that 
um, they only exist as a reflection of the true oppression that's internal. The external oppression that we see, right, that the sins of the world, slavery, racism, sexism, all these things, they're external. They're only a reflection of the real internal problem. They're an outworking of an issue that's much deeper. And if you can't get to the root of the issue, then there's no amount of politics or wars or revolutions or or activism that will solve it. It won't. And and I, I would hope that most of us at least remember enough about history that we know it's been tried many times and it has yet to work. And this is because sin is our oppressor, and this kind of slavery comes from within. It is internal. It is not external. And James tells us this. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust, right? Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So where is this sinful oppression coming from? It's coming from within us. The externals are only a picture of what we are creating on the inside. The problem is us. It's not even that sin is just this external force, this mythical creature that's just going around causing people to sin. Sin starts from within our own hearts. Jeremiah tells us this. He says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Have you ever followed your heart and then afterwards you look back and say, man, that was really bad. That was a really stupid decision. We, maybe we should not be so into the Disney movies, right, where they say, hey, follow your heart. You can be all that you can be. It works really well if all you have is 90 minutes, right, and it's a cartoon. It doesn't work so well when you have to live 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. It doesn't work so well when you have the responsibility of a marriage or a family or a business or work. Like, you can't just follow your heart. Well, my heart told me I wanted to sleep in this morning. I didn't get back until late last night. It would be much easier. You know what? My heart just told me that they'll figure it out today. <laughs> Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And the reason why this is so important to understand is because when we, when we fall into this lie of follow your heart, we have to remember, it's deception. We don't naturally see it as the lie it is. We look at it and say, but I really, really want this. Right? This is, this is really the desire I, and it's a good thing. Well, that's because it's a deception. If it was a, if it was a bad lie, we'd just be like, yeah, he's lying. My heart's lying. Right? So we have to know the truth. We have to recognize that the oppression comes from within. It's not external. Our slavery, our oppression. But here's the good news. Okay, we can have freedom from this. We can have freedom from our deceitful hearts. We can have freedom from the sinful oppression and slavery that comes from within our very selves. See, the first Adam fell. He failed in his role as prophet, priest, and king. But Christ, Jesus Christ, has come, the second Adam, 
and fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah 61. This is what he says in Luke 4, 18. He sits down in the synagogue. Well, maybe I didn't give that one to John because it's like the exact same thing. He just sits down in the synagogue in Luke 4, 18 and he reads out Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, in your listening. You are participating. You are seeing it acted out today that Christ, the Messiah, has come. The anointed one has come to set free the captives. And what is the ultimate captivity? Our slavery to sin. So what has Christ come to do through the cross and through the resurrection, through his ministry as the second Adam? He has called to give, he has come to give us a new heart. He has brought us into a new creation where we are no longer enslaved to the oppression that comes from within because we have been made new. Christ has come. The curtain has been torn in two. The cherubim who guarded the garden have returned to their place of worship, Revelation tells us. Christ has come and he's washed us in his blood. He has cleansed us and he has made us a kingdom of priests. He has reconciled us to God and now we are reconcilers of the world. He has brought comfort to those who mourn and he has turned us into his own prophets, priests, and kings after himself. All of creation is his. Right? This is something that we tend to miss when we read Matthew 28. Sometimes we jump right to the discipleship part and we forget the first part. What does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Everything now belongs to our Lord. And he has restored and he's in the process of restoring what we have broken and most importantly, he has restored us. Right? That's what it means to be. You, you've been restored. You've been freed from the shackles of slavery to sin. True freedom does not come you know, on the 4th of July where we just remember the Declaration of Independence. That's great. Fine. But that's not true freedom. Our country couldn't even do it right then, and they can't do it right 200 plus years removed. True freedom has to come from the Lord because only He can change the slavery from within. Well, the next form of freedom is freedom from the law. This is Galatians 3 10 through 14. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become... A curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The issue with, the, with um, 
Galatians here, a little bit of context, was that they were freed in Christ, but then they were returning, they were returning back to slavery under the law. The Judaizers, right, these were uh, Jews who uh, in many ways were wolves within the church and teaching Christians who are free in Christ that they still needed to submit to like the law of circumcision if they were going to be a true follower of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, I want to break this into, into two things here. There, there are ways of being free from the law. There are, there are two ways, I would say, of returning to slavery under the law. The first one is, is this idea of this toxic relationship with the law where, where Paul says, you foolish Galatians, this is Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, what's Paul saying here? Paul is, is showing that Christians, we have this temptation to return to works. This is the temptation for many Christians. And it's not just for the Roman Catholics, and it's not just for the Pharisees. Um, it's this idea that we, we can be... We, we can forget what grace is supposed to mean. We can forget how the Lord is the one who does the sanctifying work in our hearts. And we can try to take the reins. And we can try to say, by my will, Lord, by my white knuckling, by my returning to the law. Now, no one would say it that way. But for many of us, we live that way. We live as if Christ started the work, but we need to be the ones who finish it. And when that happens, our self-evaluation does not begin with our identity in Christ, but with a sinful and prideful disposition to earn his favor. And this is a challenge. It's been a challenge in my life as well, where I've, you know, I, I couldn't reconcile the fact that I was united with Christ. I couldn't reconcile the fact that God, when he looked at me, even though I'm a sinner, he would see his son. I couldn't reconcile with the fact that God delighted in me, that I'd been adopted into the family of God. And so I lived in this form of slavery where I was returning back to, if I'm going to please God and merit favor before him, I need to do A, B, C. I need to look a certain way. I need to act a certain way. I need to follow uh, the commandments. And don't get me wrong. We'll talk about this. It's not that you can just forsake the commandments of God and live however you want to live. But at the same time, it's recognizing that your salvation does not rise or fall based on your ability to do good things. It does not rise and fall based on the fact that you've sinned. You either are in Christ or you are not. You're either made new or you're not. And that is solely a work of our triune God. He is the one who makes you new. He is the one who sanctifies you. He is the one that Paul says will complete the good work that he begun in you. You cannot do it. It doesn't mean you don't have responsibilities. Like I said, we'll get to that. But at the same time, you do not have the ability to merit God's favor. If that's the life that you are trying to live, I'm telling you, that is not freedom. You are returning to slavery. 
you are returning into a toxic relationship with the law. As, as, as like Robin said during announcements, look, I'm not the cheap grace guy, right? I'm not the kind of seeker-friendly desiring to give you false comfort. But I'm also aware that there are ways that we Christians, even from the pulpit, can talk about our relationship with Christ in a way that all but eliminates grace. Where it's all about you. It's all about your ability to be disciplined. It's all about how much you serve. It's all about how often and how much you pray. It's all about how good the theology is that you learn. Or for those on the flip side who don't really care about theology, all you want is application because you have to do something. Even we see it now with uh, this newer generation of Christians, right, where the, the, the big thing right now is this social justice activism. I'm not against activism. I'm not against justice. But it has to be distinctly Christian. We don't just do things to merit God's favor. It has never worked that way. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn God's favor, ever. It either comes from the heart change because you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ or nothing. The other form of slavery to the law, though, is the opposite, which is, uh, I'm going to use a fancy word here, okay? It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism is just combining two words that means against law. All right, anti, right? Anti, maybe antichrist, you've heard that before. So anti, against, and then namas is law. So take that with you. But there are different levels of antinomianism. There are different levels of that within, the Christian, within Christianity. There are those who look at God's law, and because they don't want that toxic relationship, they've gone completely to the other end of the spectrum where the church pretty much just looks like the book of Judges, where everyone just did what is right in their own eyes. And you have churches that are full of sin, and I'm not talking about like repentance, and I'm talking about parading sin, and apostatizing. Because they think that their freedom that they have, hey look, we're not under the law anymore, we can just do whatever we want. But that's actually a form of slavery as well. Then there are those who are a little bit more in the conservative circles, those who think that only the New Testament applies to us today, and all that other stuff is just Old Testament, you know, hardly can believe it's even the same God. I like the God of grace in the New Testament, not the God of judgment in the Old Testament. Well, that's another form of antinomianism because, believe it or not, in the New Testament church, their scriptures were the Old Testament. And if you read the Gospels, if you read Paul, if you read the book of Revelation, you can't turn a page without them quoting from the law, without them quoting from the prophets. So there's this kind of 
this, this way of Christianity, especially today in the evangelical world, where we're so shy of the law and, and anything it may actually uh, show that's any good, that we're, we're just, hey, I don't want to be under the law, Galatians, Galatians, that we actually get to the other end of the spectrum where we put ourselves in the slavery of false freedom. And it's a slavery that's built on a bad understanding of Scripture. So then, how should we see the law? Well, again, this is the kind of freedom that only Christ can bring because Christ says in Matthew five seventeen through 20, and let me turn there so I can read it for you. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus answers this question of how do we, what does this slavery to the law look like and how do we get freedom? Well, the first is it, it's not from abolishing the law because Jesus just said, that's not what I came to do. I came to fulfill it. But he also gives this warning that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, which is another challenge because then what you're saying is, well, nobody keeps the law better than them. So, I, so you, you didn't abolish the law, but yet you're saying that unless my righteousness exceeds those who keep the law better than anybody, I can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what's the answer? The answer is right there in the middle when he says, I've come to fulfill it. Everything in the law and everything in the prophets point to Christ and find their yes and amen in him. So all these feasts, all these sacrifices, all the predictions, all the civil and societal rules, they are all pointing to Christ. And we have to come to this this understanding So we can't keep the law for salvation because that's slavery. We can't abolish the law either. That's slavery with a false sense of freedom. Instead, the Christian is supposed to look at the law lawfully. That is how it points to Christ and how it is to function within the kingdom of God. It means that everything in the law does have a principled application in the new covenant but it must be seen in light of the lawgiver himself and how Christ fulfills that. But I don't have time to go through all of them with you. It's a lot. A lot of feasts, a lot of laws. The last form here, and I should probably catch us up, There we are. So we've been freed from the shackles of slavery to sin. We've been freed from the law. 
in recognizing that we can't hold to the law, we can't be sanctified by the law, we can't earn our salvation, so we've been freed from the law, and now we're going to look at how we've been freed from fear. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 say, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hear me on this. People who fear death are slaves. People who fear death are slaves. We saw this last year in this pandemic where a lot of Christians were so afraid, their fear of death from COVID, that they're even willing to compromise their morals because of it. Compromise what God had commanded his church to do and to be. There's this story of this man who's probably very unknown. I'd be surprised if anyone knew it. His name is John Harper. He was a preacher in Scotland. It was him, his wife, and his daughter. His wife died, and they had family in the United States. And so he got... Uh, hired, I guess is the best way to say it, he got hired to be the new pastor of Moody Church. This is in the early 1900s. And so as the congregation of Moody Church excitedly anticipated the coming of John Harper, this pastor that they knew of in Scotland, who was a man of faith, a good preacher, a good evangelist, he traveled with his daughter across the Atlantic Ocean And on April 14, 1912, the Titanic hit an iceberg. And as it was sinking, he got his daughter onto a lifeboat and was offered, since he was the uh, sole guardian on the boat, to go in with her. But instead, because he knew there was family in the United States, he gave his seat up for another. And instead, he spent the last two hours of the ship going down preaching the gospel every person he could meet. At one point, it's even recorded that somebody refused the gospel, and so his response was to give them his life jacket and say, well, then you need this more than I do. The ship sank, and as 1,500 people were in the water, he was swimming around trying to give the gospel to the people. Ten years later, a group of survivors met. And as they met, one survivor said, does anybody know John Harper? He said, well, I'm the last convert of John Harper. He said, because as we were in the water, he swam up to me and asked if I knew the gospel. Do I knew the Lord Jesus? And I said, no. So he swam away and he started giving the gospel to others. But as the current would have it, the waves brought them back together. And again, John Harper said, 
and demanded that he know the Lord Jesus and that he be saved from his sins. And the man accepted the gospel and watched John Harper drown. Now, why do I bring up this story? Because this is a man who did not fear death. Because this is a man who knew that the most important thing for him was to bring the gospel to the lost, especially those who were enslaved to fear. Because we are not the ones enslaved to fear. We are not the ones fearing death. The world is the one that fears death. And so if we as Christians walk around and live under this enslavement and this fear of death and the world sees that, then what hope do we have to offer? Fear is an idol that many Christians struggle with. For me, I'll start with me because I'm going to get a little bit heavy here, so I better start with myself. I have a fear of man. It's a pride problem. Going through these, these idol videos has been really helpful. I have a fear of man. I don't like being exposed. I don't like people seeing the failures of my life. I feel foolish. Anyone relate to that? Okay. <laughs> but a fear of man will keep us from fellowshipping. It'll keep us from serving. It'll keep us from being a light to the world. Fear, slavery to fear, will cause us to compromise the things that God has called us to do. And we are really, really good at coming up with excuses. This is what James says about that. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. But for many of us Christians, we know the right thing to do. And it's fear that holds us back. We know, for instance, that the right thing to do is to be at church on Sunday, to be fellowshipping with the body, to be worshiping the Lord as He has called us to do on Sundays. Yet there are so many lies that keep us in a fearful state and from doing that. I don't want people to see me. I don't want to have to interact with people and be exposed, right? A fear of man. I don't want my failures. I don't want people to see my sin. I don't want people to see my faults. I don't want to be embarrassed. Or I have to work on Sundays. I have to make money. I have to provide. It's a lie. It's a lie. And the reason why we know that is because, one, the way that God has designed the church is if it's a good church, when you're exposed for your sin, then the body of Christ comes around you. They help you. They comfort you. We have people that have, they've wandered and strayed from this church, and they'll message me like, hey, can I come back? I say, yeah, brother, come on back. And then they don't. And they say, well, I say, well, why didn't you come? Where were you? You said you were going to be here this Sunday. I didn't want to deal with, you know, being confronted. I didn't want to deal with, you know, having to go say my apologies or go let people know why I'm back. Why? Because it's humbling. It's a little bit humiliating. But what they don't understand is 
We're called to be a forgiving people. And we recognize that we're no better. It doesn't mean that someone that you love won't get in your kitchen and be like, how you doing? How can we help, right? You got to have those conversations. I get that. But at the same time, recognize that it's not from a place of judgment. It's not from a place of pride. Or at least it shouldn't be, right? Another one is a fear of death. A fear of death and a fear of man has led a lot of churches to closing for even a year or more. Or only letting a certain number of people attend. Or neglecting the Lord's Supper. Or neglecting discipleship. And they want to call it loving neighbor, but it's fear. You know, you want to know something historically about the church? Did you know that there have been plagues throughout the history of the church? That the COVID pandemic is not the first time that this has happened? Anyone heard of the Black Plague? The Black Plague destroyed and killed about one-third of the population between the United Kingdom and India. Think about that. One-third of the population. And you know what the church was doing? The church was continuing to do what they were called to do by God. And not only that, they were on the front lines of ministering to those who were dying, even at the risk of their death. And many pastors did die. And no, they weren't afraid because they're not slaves to fear. The church is not, we're Christians, we're not called to be slaves of fear. There's this funny meme and there's this song. It's, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. But it shows these people in this church where they've got all this six feet of distancing, they're not interacting, and some of them are online singing it at home. They're singing, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God, while they're enslaved to fear. So unlike the Black Plague, this time when people were fearing and hurting, most of the church just stayed home. This is not what Christ has given us. Christ has given us not a spirit of fear, but as 2 Timothy 1 tells us, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. A good way of translating that is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of courage and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know why you don't have to fear death? Because death has been conquered. Death has been conquered. You have been given the gift of life and immortality. So you don't have to be like one of the cowardly men who decided to take a position on the lifeboat 
you can say, you give my seat to someone else, I'm going to go preach the gospel. So Christ has taken our slavery to fear and has given us his spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit that gives us courage. And Christ gives us the courage to stand strong on the truth of God's word, even when the kingdom of the world is hostile toward us. So let me ask then, what are some areas of fear in your life? What are some areas of fear in your life that are keeping you trapped? What are some areas of fear in your life that are causing you to compromise what you know is right? Is it the fear of being exposed? Is it the fear of missing and losing out on the joys of what the world and the flesh can offer? Is it the fear that because you stand strong in the Word of God and you don't compromise, that the deceived world may be mad at you and may not like you? Is it a fear of for your own life? You know, I think many of us, we look at something like the Titanic, we say, I, I would stay strong. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take somebody's seat on the boat. But I think the problem is, I, I think I, I doubt that for a lot of people. I think for a lot of Christians, we are very, very much enslaved to fear. And this last year showed that in spades. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I know some of you in here are, are justifying, well, hey, we wanted to save lives. We wanted to protect people. A lot of people did what they did because they were scared, not because they were concerned for others. People hoarded toilet paper because they were scared. People are getting the vaccine because they're scared. A lot of people, now I'll probably get in trouble for this, you can send me an email then. A lot of people got the vaccine without counting the cost. Because they were scared, because they cared for their own life. They didn't care who it affected. They didn't care how many babies were murdered and experimented on. They didn't care because they're more concerned with themselves. And to me, that's like Esau giving up a birthright for a bowl of soup. Christ has given us a spirit of courage to so take courage if God is for you, who can stand against you? Our God knows what you need. He knows what you need and he will provide. Listen to this for some encouragement, hopefully from Matthew 6. 
For this reason, this is Jesus, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Or are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Will you trust? If you stand firm in your faith in Lord Jesus, if you stand firm in the conviction of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, will you trust that God will provide? You've been given eternal life. You will not go home until the Lord calls you home. So we need to be free from the slavery of sin. We need to be freed from the slavery of the law. We need to be freed from the slavery of fear. And the only answer to all three of those is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have a lot of immediate application. And I think you guys are ready for me to be done anyway, but... If you walk in freedom, if you want to walk in freedom, you must grab hold of these truths, and you must let these truths grab hold of you. You cannot walk in freedom while also trying to walk in fear, while also trying to walk in slavery, while also trying to walk in a way that you can earn God's favor. You will never walk in freedom that way. You have to let them go, and you have to grab faithfully and firmly to the truths of God. Happy Fourth of July. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that um, we would recognize that even as Christians, it can be so easy for us to fall into any of these forms of slavery. It can be so easy to fall back into sin. It can be so easy to try to fall back into works and, and, and trying to earn your favor, Lord. And it can be so easy, God, to fall into fear, whether it's the fear of death or the fear of man. Lord, but when we understand the blessings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that we have been freed from all these things. I pray, Lord, that we would live in light of that freedom. I praise your name, Lord. Thank you for this morning. And bless our time as we take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.